Hello, I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. For this episode, we talk about the value versus complexity trade-off. And we do it in some really interesting contexts. We start looking at the Okta hack and if the complexity of using single sign-on is the right move and if people are going to reassess that. And that lets us come in very gracefully into thinking through how we deal with uh, these interconnected systems that have high degrees of complexity um, in building them to be interconnected. And that leads us into API design and whether or not we should have more rigid or more flexible APIs. Um, because you don't remove complexity from the system, but you can hide it. And when you have an API structured in a certain way, it will push that API, that complexity into the user's realm or the operator's realm. Uh, something we, we've talked about a lot, and we get pretty far on this. If you care about complexity and building systems, then you will get a lot from this podcast. Enjoy it. And I, I was interested in hearing people's thoughts on the Okta um, compromise. <laughs> I guess the, the problem with the, the whole thing is I can't tell how much is PR either positive or negative or a real breach. Oh, that's an interesting question. I had not heard that take at all. Well, <clears throat> if you listen to or hear, if you read what Okta has been saying, um, they're absolutely downplaying it and basically saying, <clears throat> no, this is part of this is old news and and part of it is uh, a uh, you know a fairly minimal social engineering aspect where you know somebody somebody pulled the wool over a, a, a software engineer's or a, a field engineer's eyes and got them to reveal codes or uh, access but it's not at all clear from the perpetrators what they actually did or pulled off. So at this point, I'm kind of sitting there going, is this a, um, is this a tempest in a teapot or is this, uh, is this for real? And, you know, it certainly does impact Okta and, and, and their reputation and so forth, but um, it's not clear that they're doing a particularly great job of responding to it. So, yeah. Yeah. I think the real challenge is that computing an impact matrix of, you know, what happens when something is compromised or how much is compromised, it's really hard to go compute what the downstream impact is going to be. And because that's so hard, it's very hard for a lot of these companies to also communicate what you know their customers might need to go do. Um, because it's just so all over the place in terms of what the potential impact is. And 
from their standpoint, they will try and downplay it as much as possible. I'd be interested in I'd be interested in knowing from an Okta customer what Okta has what actions Okta has taken and what have they informed them of and what have they what actions have they told them to take. That would be somewhat that, that would be definitely very interesting to to read through. I agree. Uh, I, from from what I get it. Um, yes, uh, uh, it it appears to have been mostly a social engineering based compromise. So, at least on the technical side, Okta still seems to be solid. Um, yeah, I think the biggest damage to Okta's reputation is that they they have the process in place where a field engineer can be tricked. Yeah. into removing MFA and resetting passwords on a on a customer's uh, accounts. Like hey. This is something that should that they should not have been able to do. Exactly. But the technical damage might not have been great, but the damage to the company, the way that they're managing this crisis, and the processes that they have had in place to keep this from happening are are really what's damaging them now. Yep, <laughs> I agree. And and I know people who are working at companies that are in the process of that, or at least up until this week, were in the process of moving their authentication to Okta. Um, I can't name names, but uh, yeah, I'm I'm curious how this will uh, impact uh, their final decision. Yeah, personally, if I was making a bet as a CTO, I would absolutely go do that. I would find the top provider and Okta as one of the top ones to go move my identity to do that because of two things. Number one, it's rare to have an organization do this all by themselves or manage it by themselves um, and prevent it. Like No one can guarantee, or it's very expensive to have resources to be able to manage a security, ongoing security infrastructure or to tackle something like this just by yourself. You'd much rather have some specialist come do this for you, um, like Okta. And second, I think this is a perfect time. They just got, they just had a big security incident and they're going to be shoring up all of these holes that they've just discovered. So it just gets better and stronger. We disaster. So, yeah. so, I mean, I mean, I don't know much about the Octa breach, but I mean, a, a corollary here is, you know, back in 2019, you know, in the area that I'm familiar with in, in, in data storage, you know, Rubrik had a, had a big customer leak of customer data and it was all over the press and it was sort of miserable for them for about three or four weeks, but frankly, mm-hmm. they're, they're doing just fine. Thank you. Um, you know, they went, you know, they got through it, they got better and, you know, yeah, cut some customers were, 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 were grumpy, but at the end of the day, you know, you know, you still have to, you know, the the product and the service is still there and it still works and 
you know, wise people don't sort don't necessarily do things strictly reactive, right? You know, running away from Okta now, you know, would be sort of, you know, a reactive kind of approach. And I don't think wise people do that. I completely agree with that. I mean, there are people who run away from Salesforce after. That's, that's just because they don't like status. Um, it's the same reason people leave Oracle, right? Fair enough. I, I guess that, that, that the difference there might have been that they were already teetering on, on, on the brink of leaving on, on, on this and was the, the final catalyst. Uh, versus Okta, where at least historically they um, they were reputable. Uh, Mark, I see your hand is raised. Yeah, uh, just a couple of comments. I mean, I, I don't think they're um, hugely important to the conversation, but they may at least play into the psychology of it. I mean, if I was going to think that any organization would lose a majority of their customers, it would have been Solar Winds, and yet. You still see SolarWinds advertisements and marketing campaigns and people using them and so on and so forth. So um, there's that. And then there's also this weird psychology and how much it plays into it as a percentage of buyers. Uh, I have no clue, but there, I, I would bet that almost every one of you have talked to at least one person in your life who said, oh, no, I'm OK with flying United now because they just had the crash. So now they're super focused on on safety. <laughs> Right, which is which is true. Yeah, I just saw a report on the seven thirty seven eight uh, max where they're like, you know, at, at the moment there's no more heavily scrutinized plane in production than the max. Right. Yeah. Um, I I mean, there's some of this comes back to alternatives too. Um, you know, I, we, what Okta does as a centralized, you know, authentication system is super valuable and pulling, peeling out from that would, you know, actually undermine your security. And Klaus was saying that. Um, and I don't disagree, I, but for, sorry, for some of the larger enterprises that are big Microsoft shops, they're in turmoil this morning. Okay. Right. I mean, you got to figure that large insurers or anybody in the finance space, banking, virtually anybody who is big on Microsoft and even has Azure as, as its cloud provider mm -hmm. are, are just tearing through everything that they can find to figure out where they're, they're going to be affected or where they have been affected and didn't know it. I agree. I think one advantage That's that um, some of the cloud providers provide, like AWS, if you switch to something like Cognito, you are likely to have a more integrated view of what's happened across, and therefore your impact radius and stuff like that are likely to be better understood at least. Um, so I, for example, find the service like Cognito really valuable from that standpoint because all the traceability, all the um, impact of any, um, even things like cloud trail logs, logs help you 
trace the path of exactly what has happened across your entire system. And they are all part of one ecosystem. So the security parameters, the mechanics, the, the integrations that you have to manage are far less complex than when you have five completely different systems in, you know, different across different providers and you are uniquely setting up each one to deal with them the right way. So you like five sets of best practices to learn and make sure that you are doing stuff the right way. Uh, that's hard. And so sticking with one cloud provider, doing it one way, brings in a bunch of simplicity that I think is, is quite valuable, especially in large deployments, large products where they are inherently complex to start with. And the deployment complexity just adds to you know, an exponential increase in overheads to try and keep it all sane. It's interesting that you're bringing in the complexity piece because the, the topic of the day is, is talking about managing complexity. Um, and so yes. I, I, it's actually a nice key over, because oh, I can't think of a, you know, auth, auth complexity seems like one of the most likely places to cost, you know, cause a security breach, cost somebody to come, come back and have, have issues. Um, you, I mean, you had mentioned single cloud, but I, I don't think that even if you had a single cloud, you're going to have multiple SaaS vendors. Is the underpinnings here moving towards a single auth system? Is like, is that the start of the, you know, managing some complexity here? I think it boils down to a lot of the footprint, right? I mean, when you assess your application and all the different components, you basically have to judge how vast is your footprint? How many different things do you have to take care of and as you're deploying it? And yeah. as any architect would, would tell you, you, you focus on trying to reduce your footprint and your overhead as much as possible. If your cloud provider is giving you a set of services that even though an external SaaS provider might have a few other features, I'd say eight out of 10 times, you're likely to trade off those few extra features for the simplicity of managing this footprint by just taking what your cloud provider provides because the integrations are simpler. You know that, you know, you know how it all works. The management overhead is far less because you have one less set of best practices to kind of figure out and learn and practice. So as long as it meets a minimum standard, which absolutely should be met, like I wouldn't go for something that's, you know, so just not working. I, I just, you were, you were reflecting a school of thought that, that I think is practical. The thing that, that I would and and makes sense to me. Like like, you know, if you're on commit to a platform, stay on that platform. I guess the the challenge that I see in in that thinking, and this is to me part of the the, the broader market question, is if if you're dealing with a cloud provider and they're like uh, Amazon's, you know, let's just we'll pick on Amazon's Amazon's um, security um, IM stuff. They're not. I haven't seen them do any 
broader, you know, multi multi system. Like they're not particularly incented to have that work as a as a multi cloud or a centralized hub. So you end up if you have even one or two services that are outside the sphere of that control, you end up with two or or more. Um, I think that's changed quite a bit in the recent past. Like if you look okay. at any of the three cloud providers uh, providing, then uh, talking specifically about authentication. So IAM is one aspect of it, but if you look at a service like AWS Cognito, it provides all the mechanics to connect to any of you know, the standard providers over SAML or OAuth. And it provides mechanisms to do just that. Um, so it's not that they are not looking at it because integrations for someone like Amazon is incredibly important. They want as many workloads to come to their systems as possible. And the more impedance that people have in connecting to other providers and bringing in workloads is just harder for them. So I think they are incentivized to make sure that they, their integrations are as simple as, as possible. They build services like um, AppFlow that literally allow you to pull in data from any third-party service like Salesforce or uh, Zendesk or the likes over to Amazon. So they have been working on deeply integrated mechanics to connect into all of these different systems. I, I, I think the, the, the problem is less, less so much importing external OAuth systems, which as you said, there, there's plenty of facilities for that and for delegation and federation of OAuth. Uh, but when it comes back to IAM, um, or, 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 or even with, 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 with auth as well, in some cases, integrating external authentication is made easy by the cloud providers. Integrating their authentication into external systems is not made easy. And, and, and that is a purely self-interest commercial reason for that, is that they want to make it difficult for their customers to leave the platform. I, I agree with you on, on the potential for the intent. I think there's a technical reason, too, tied up in complexity, which is a company like Amazon likes owning their vertical stack and seems to have very little interest in adding external dependencies or dealing with external. It's just not there. It just doesn't seem how they operate. Maybe I mean, I'm, there's so much they do that maybe there's another thing that I'm not thinking of, but like Apple, they're, they're very focused on vertical integrations and less on ecosystem integrations. Um, from there, from, from the inside out, like they love ecosystem integrations from the outside in. Um, yeah. I think they're okay with it as long as it is a standard protocol or a standard mechanism. Anything that's custom, they usually don't. It's not, it's not quite as a scale, at scale for them, from their standpoint, to invest yeah. uh, and add complexity. If something's a very standard protocol, yeah, there are a number of examples where they've done it. But anything that is very custom to some application or product, no, they 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 likely stay away from those scenarios. 
we're we're drifting into the sort of the Amazon piece, and I wanted to pull us back towards the complexity component. Um, I mean, and I and I buy the move everything to Amazon piece here, but I, it doesn't feel like a very good answer for most people, right? I mean, that's, we, we're we're at we're we're talking about Okta because it's a third, it's a neutral. Auth system that has managed to establish an ecosystem where a lot of people can have have connected in. Um, is yeah, I think in general the, the conversation. I agree that there might be certain services where there is a certain value you get from it, where you want to go leverage an external third party service, Okta or otherwise. That's the that CRM solution, right? Whether it's if it's Salesforce or whatever else. There isn't another great option in AWS that gives you Salesforce. And so you might have a solution that connects with it. And that's perfectly fine. I think the, the general comment that I was trying to make was, as a, someone who's building a solution, your goal is to minimize complexity to the maximum extent possible. And so unless there is a value proposition that is significantly greater outside, my first... Um, my first go-to service is going to be internal to whatever ecosystem I'm in, mm-hmm. and only then look out for something that you know adds significantly more value. There's a trade-off that you make between complexity and the value that it delivers. Okay. Um, another way to look yeah. at it is all the complexity that you buy with all these third-party integrations, you start treating them as liabilities. Okay. As long as they deliver multiples in return for the liability that you are taking on, it's great, it's great value. It's like a home loan you take to buy a house and as long as it's getting you value, great. But realize <laughs> that at some point of time, that liability gets really big and you have to remember that you have to maintain all of it for a while. So you have to make some long bets on some of these things and decide whether you are willing to own that liability for that long. Or do you bet on someone like AWS where you say, Okay, today I don't have the seven features that Okta has, but I know Cognito will probably get them in in the next year, year and a half. So this is a compromise. It's it's always a trade-off, and I like to it use is. the liability value kind of analogy to to kind of judge what the right answer might be. Yeah, um, I'm just, I'm laughing because I I was we were trying to use Cognito a while ago. We it was. It was a challenge, but it wasn't, we didn't, it wasn't a substitute for us for Okta. Um, but let me, but so I think one of the things from a previous conversation that was, was the takeaway from the hour was that a lot of the, when we say complexity, what we're doing is, is exactly what you were describing, which was, it's a risk assessment that we, when we say, hey, this is complex, it, the complexity is solving a problem, but it's also adding adding risk. Um, and one of the things I think that we did a good job talking about a little at the beginning was now with Okta, you know, it you're, you might change that risk calculation from that perspective. Um, I don't think that means that you're, this is a great, this is, this to me is a, is a, is the classic complexity conversation because Taking out a centralized auth system and having your auth distributed is 
exactly the thing, you know, we, nobody would do that. So the, adding the complexity of having a centralized one and then managing it is exactly the, is exactly the, Don's full of quotes today, um, is exactly the challenge that we need to be right. That this is, this is the complexity balance. We're adding, we're adding something in that centralizes, reduces complexity of the system by having centralized auth and adds potentially more risk at this point. Um, but those risks are unknown at this point, right? You don't know how far thing. back this goes or how far forward. And I don't look at it as risk management. I look at it as trade-off management. Okay. You're trading off what you know to be useful now versus what you don't know may not have been quite as comp as useful in terms of complexity because of what's now been exposed. And I don't mean data being exposed or, or how it's related to other products and the products that Okta sits in, but just generally speaking, complexity analysis is like chaos theory. And the only way to handle that is, is through trade-off. And trade-off management is an art and a science. There's another thing you said, though, which was tra there's a transparency question here that is making yes. that 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 you can't do the trade off assessment with all the unknowns. Well, or you, or can, you, you have to assume the worst. Well, I don't know about you, but I always assume the worst and then go for the <laughs> positive after because I'd rather be caught with my pants up than down. But right. especially in very large enterprise when we would do risk analysis and risk assessment, there was always the what if, and we always did that trade-off based on cost consideration, future state, what we knew was coming down the pike in terms of road mapping, because road mapping was always a, a discussion in a conversation with a vendor, and we would hold their feet to the fire if they didn't deliver. But that said, times are different now, and some people tend to make their trade-off management or their risk assessment less weighted towards future because technology changes so much faster now than it did in the past, right? You could have more updates, more releases, et cetera. That too ends up being a factor in that trade-off management because there's a cost associated and a value associated. What I'm waiting for is somebody to come up with a really good trade-off management tool because they're few and far between. Interesting thought. What would be one that you would, that, what's the best that you are aware of? Ooh, um, the best that I'm aware of right now tends to fall into the geospatial realm. Yeah. And, one, and it's one that I use fairly often because it allows me multi-factor uh, probabilities, statistical, statistical analysis, et cetera, et cetera. And I can weight each of the factors on something like art, which may seem out of the norm, like pest or pastille even, where I'm taking eight or nine different factors and looking at each in, in, in the context of the variable. Um, yeah, there's, I don't, there's I don't, a couple. Yeah, I don't think we, we do a very good job 
a, a very consistent job in looking at this, especially with complexity. I think it would help us wrangle complexity from that perspective. Well, Ryan, a question for you. Um, how many variables are typically handled in you know, mm-hmm. these, these kind of systems that are in other domains? I, I'm not familiar with them, so just curious. There, so the tool that we've used, and it's a very old tool, it's a piece of software that was developed basically for environment um, and environmental surveys and assessments and whatever. Um, it handles 22. So okay. those 22 variables, you can then extend times five or six and look at them in the, in the various different lights or lenses. They're, they're used as lenses, but it was done as um, a tool that would be used by like mining and, you know, um, cartography, geospatial, et cetera, et cetera. And it was in its day, um, probably 25,000 a license. We just happened to know the people who wrote it and they're retired now, but still do a little bit of support when we need it. But it's, it's really interesting to see how you can weight and average out. So to take complexity, I mean, how many variables would you look at? Hardware, software, um, the APIs, the you know uh, usability. You could probably put 20 factors together and weight on those and then do the trade-offs accordingly. I mean, anything that speeds time to value automatically gets a one category. I think the challenge there is uh, that there are far more variables and then abstraction. You kind of have to figure out what the right level of abstraction is to reduce the number of variables. Because like when I when we just look at this conversation of, do I build an app which is connected to Cognito internally versus use Okta? Just the ink, I mean, forget all the network, the VPCs, the subnets, the you know service like AWS going down or a region going down or an availability zone going down um, versus security beach breaches. And then when I decide to go to something like uh, Okta, then I have the network between the data center and Okta. I have to then just you know, know, and there are variables around whether my team has all the knowledge and the ability and the best practices all you know, develop to a point where we can go deploy something, then there's a support aspect of it. Like what if something goes wrong? Do they have the capabilities? To be able to jump on it, right? What are the different things that they are capable of handling, not capable of handling? Like you can go into an endless, you know, <laughs> black hole of these questions. And uh, the interesting question would be: How do you decide what level of abstraction you kind of cut things off and say, okay, this is a decent enough level where I can make some good trade-offs? Yeah. Analysis paralysis. Rich, did you want to chime in? Yeah, just a well, first of all, a question. When you're talking about risk analysis, are we talking about risk analysis packages that are specific to a domain, or are we talking about general purpose tooling or methodology for risk analysis and then um prescriptive action. That was the question. The the statement, though, is that um, 
if we're talking about reduction of complexity, and we have also said, you know, one way of reducing the burden is allowing someone else to do it like a large CSP that will remain unnamed. Um, <laughs> the, the point here is um, what actions do you take? What, at what point can you put your hands back on the steering wheel? If in fact you're encountering a problem and does your solution provide for the ability to um, break the complexity, you know, open the complexity protection envelope and get into the, into the mix so that you can take action reasonably quickly with some sense of safety, you know, call in the pros from Dover. And then at a certain point, can you re reestablish the less complex solution and you know, kind of return to a, a different level of uh, attention? And I don't know of anybody that actually does a good job of that. If I look at the um, the risk management software for business risk um, due to infrastructure, there you know I can probably scoop up you know 15, 20 different software packages, but um, I can't tell you how successful they are in being used. They're mostly, in my mind, there to <laughs> um, satisfy some executive's concern, and you get a you get a basically a check mark uh, for having you know uh, put something <laughs> in place. If you're the CISO or um, you're the um, head of ops, I'm I'm laughing because I suddenly have this image of somebody producing, and I know I've been on the producing side of this, a, a nice thick document, the beautiful cover that has the impact assessments. And it literally just goes from the desk to the filing cabinet and it's not, it's not used. Right. Oh yeah. Um, I, I guess part of what I was thinking we would, we would go to here and right. This is always a continuation of other conversations is are there things that we can do without like, without measuring the the risk components or, or trying to formulate, put a formula together to just say, all right, if we take these actions for this one, we I'd put immutability on the list, but just to reduce the moving parts of the system. Right. Yeah. I know like, like, and this is down in the weeds compared to where we've been talking. I know that for us, when we look at system management, producing the system as a full artifact that you bundle together. And, you know, instead of having to, um, you know, figure every component or install every piece on that system. So we, we go from having, you know, a long list of things that we have to install to replicate a system to here is the artifact, use that one artifact, it builds the whole system. It, that reduces the, operational complexity of the environment because now we have bigger chunks of, of 
to manage, more repeatable chunks to manage. Is that is that uh, mechanism a a template? Is it a is it a fairly discrete? Mm-hmm. Um, and is that template? How, how malleable is the is the system that works with that template? In other words, um, do you have the possibility of um, adjusting the template? And what you know, at what levels of complexity, what levels of knowledge must you have in order to be granted the ability to to modify that template? Because I mean, if you're going to give me a um, not much more than a you know a, a, an automated runbook from the old days, you know I'm I'm kind of SOL here with the with making any changes to it and and responding to the to the whatever the threat or issue is, if it's um, reasonably well instrumented and can report back. You know, this is a situation that calls for human intervention, or uh, it's a decision that me- needs to be made at a certain level. That changes the that changes the value of the tool or the right. system in place. So, right. what are we talking about? If I can jump in for a second here, please. I almost see this kind of approach as very analogous to API management. Right. When you design an API, you decide what fun- the API function name or API call name basically says what you intend to do. Then you define a set of parameters that are your variables that you're allowed to play around with. That's your variable. But there's conscious thought that has gone into design what is going to be fixed in terms of what the function does and what variables you're let- letting the customer pass in to give different outcomes, right? The flexibility is your parameters. And we actually see these templates in pretty much the same way. It needs that level of design to say, do you want someone to go in and pretty much willingly change anything in the template? Or what are the parameters you want to go constrain, right? And you have to go through a design process because there are trade-offs like in any API, the more flexibility you start giving, the more testing you need to do, the larger the footprint of things that can go wrong. And therefore, you know, you want to minimize that as much as possible and make sure that you can actually, you have full control over exactly what gets done. So it's pretty much like API design. You, you have to make very specific calls and template design is as important as API design. I actually agree with that. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like, like being in a position where where, where I, I produce templates for internal users, um, template design is definitely critical. Like, I, a, a a a correct template reduces the required knowledge by the user to. Mm-hmm. Um, 
request infrastructure. Um, and, and, and conversely, a, a, a bad template uh, just it it doesn't reduce complexity. It just obfuscates it and, and, and shifts it further. I have a question about this. You're talking when we talk about complexity, there's complexity in connectivity, there's complexity in user design, there's complexity in the business value that ends up getting spit it up, spit out in terms of risk management or cost versus risk. When you are looking at APIs, particularly certainly you want to be more careful because you're exposing data to risk of violation, exposure, whatever, whatever, lack of connectivity, user failure. But overall, from a systems perspective, how are you, I guess, how are you taking complexity and breaking it down into its key components, like in terms of logic? is one thing in terms of architecture is another whole category. And there's probably 10 variables within it, connectivity, network use, power consumption, uh, blah, blah, blah. I could go on for an hour. How are we breaking this down? Because no matter how good the template is, the context matters. Yep. I think that's a great question. And the way, I mean, we are a big AWS shop, so I can give you some context in the way we, do this exercise. Sure. So AWS has put together something called a well-architected framework, which has yeah. a pillar along which you decide uh, what your infrastructure should do. So when we create a template, we question, you know, uh, every time we choose this, so number one, you have to decide what that template is supposed to do, like what infrastructure is it going to launch? What is it actually fundamentally supposed to do, right? Suppose you want someone to launch EC2 instances, then you should be able to articulate very clearly that I want to launch EC2 instances and you know it should give me whatever. Like you have to decide what your output is going to be. But beyond that, then you start looking at it from the lens of operational excellence, which is the first pillar, which is when something doesn't work, you know, how how can I you know, minimize the operational overheads that come in because someone screwed things up? We gave them too much flexibility to do things the wrong way, right? And how much operational yeah, overhead do I need? How much operational overhead does the customer of that API need? Like, does my customer need to really understand what subnet that EC2 instance needs to be launched in? Or can I just make that decision for them? Because there's one subnet, there's a default subnet, that's where everything goes, right? You have to make decisions like that. So there's the operational excellence aspect of it. Then there's security, right? You want to make sure that you are doing everything to create what we call permission boundaries. Like we set permission boundaries in a manner that says, our customer of this API is not allowed to do anything beyond X. And we define what that X is. Well, that's, the, that's literally the permission boundary beyond which they're not allowed to execute Anything because beyond that, it it will beat our security policies that are set across the org. Then the third one is reliability. Okay, a lot of times there's a narrow window of parameters along which 
you've tested your entire infrastructure stack and it comes up well. You start varying a bunch of other things, you'll suddenly start seeing a lot of errors. So you want to make sure that the stack that you've created in the way, along the parameters of the variables that you're allowing customers to vary, you are confident of getting repeatable, reliable, you know, stand up and stand downs of those pieces of infrastructure. Then there's performance efficiency. Like, is the setup, you know, um, deployed the right way? For example, you always want to access an EC2 instance to access uh, S3 or DynamoDB or any of these services via a VPCM. You do not want this traffic to go over the internet, right? So are those performance efficiencies, and this could be, you know, it also relates to cost and cost optimization. You want to make sure that all of those decisions are encapsulated and, I think as Chris was saying earlier, there is an element of customers not needing to know every nitty gritty detail. And therefore you want to minimize the complexity for the customer to get what they need from a business value standpoint. For most of your customers, that's the analysis you have to do. You have to say, what do they want to get their job done quickly? Don't try to build everything for everybody. And so the well-architected framework, we find very useful to decide along what dimensions you ask and answer questions that determine what your variables are going to be and how much leeway you want to give them to launching infrastructure or templates or any API. I, I, yeah, the, I, I see a lot of parallels be, between what, what you're saying here and, and what I actually do. Um, perhaps the terminology is a, is a bit different, so I'll, I'll add my two cents there. Um, for me, or at least from my perspective, complexity, when it comes to templates, the, the biggest measure of complexity is required knowledge. A user of a template should know, should need to know a fraction of the knowledge needed to use the API that a template sits in front of. Sure. Um, so for example, like just like you said, like, like for example, if if a if a user wants to create a VM, they, they they typically don't think about okay subnets firewall rules um iam policies um access credentials that that is something that the template should be opinionated about and do and, and have sane defaults it, the template may empower the user to provide optional parameters to overwrite those defaults if necessary. But the, but the default should be same, which means that, that the default knowledge required to use the template is much less as well. But what, what you're, there's an interesting thing in what, what you're saying is you're, you're talking about the API and the, the user of the API. I, I actually started thinking based on your comments about the implementer on the other side and that the templates benefit is actually even more on the operators side of that api because it's reducing degrees of freedom in in the response 
And awesome. so from that, that perspective, by reducing the degrees of freedom, we are reducing optionality that would create complexity. So it, it's in, right part of what Don's put in the, in the back channel and with this um, value versus complexity white paper is this idea of, you know, the trade-off between value and complexity. And in a lot of cases, we, I, I tend to think of something simpler while being sometimes more, more rigid is, is actually simplicity is hard. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and oh, sorry, bro. Uh, general simplicity. Um, you, you can, uh, you, you can, your API can have complexity and, and, and it, it, you can use an API in combinations that don't make sense as long as that's documented. Uh, but it is the the job of the operator, the the one that's the one that's between the 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 final user of the tablets and the uh, and the API to provide again like opinionated combinations of the API uses that make sense uh, and that are safe for the user. And, and, and that is a very important uh, part of, of this, is that template design is very personalized. Fair enough. The, the, and, and it's invariably a, a result of the APIs being uh, aiming for a general demographic. But the actual use of the API is specific to, to the users. Well, Some you're we're, we're, you're also arguing to me. Uh, arguing is the wrong word. You're also, you're also making a, a, a reasonable statement. The APIs are are serving much more. They by design are very open and generic versus um, the the use of templates allows us to refine APIs into much more. Um, very open systems into into more controlled systems. Yes, and and I, I think that you know because this is we're we're talking about complexity and how com complexity operates and and removing degrees of of freedom. Um, and actually, this is a, I think there's a Joanne question. I have a question for Joanne on this: is is removing a degree of freedom um, a complexity reducer? No, it may be a complexity add. It actually is a function. Well, because no, but think about it, right? It, I mean, I'm listening to this discussion on on API and the templates and whatever, and I get it and I appreciate it. But what would happen if you took that same scenario and gave it to a person who's looking at it through a slightly different lens? And that goes to your question, Rob about whether it's a, a reducer or an ad, because you may be creating bias and complexity without even being aware of it. That's why that's why I tend to, you know, like I'll take something and I'll do my risk analysis and I'll do my trade-offs and, and, and all of that sort of semi-engineering stuff around things. And then I give it to somebody else to look at who's gonna show me either I've created complexity by limiting a, a certain set of variables or, and in doing so I've made them inefficient and, and it's an efficiencies 
thing. That's where the answer to your question lies. It's not something that can necessarily be done. How do I put this? Um, I think complexity is like value in a lot of ways. It's a person's perspective of what is making their job, their task, their um, something as simple as, you know, is it a get or should it really be a put? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, like in, in very simple terms, depending on the circumstance, those situations are going to change. John, I think I, I'd I'm like not, to my, my API analogy and say, you build an API for a customer. Like you need to know who the customer of that template is. Oh. And you design the API for that customer. Like for Amazon, they build 90,000 APIs because <laughs> their customers people want to do pretty much every, everything under the sun. But you see a lot of cloud formation templates out there that are very specific to the product that you're installing. And they're very specific. They'll only give you one degree of, you know, of freedom to say which account and which subnet you want to go, you know, deploy this in. And so you have to be very, very careful about design. This is product as much product management as anything else. You have to know who the customer is, who's launching this, what is the value that they want to get out of it. Okay. Do they get value out of you know, moving every little, um, you know, lever that there exists or do they get value out of just getting an instance or a stack that they can get started with right away and because their main job is doing something else. Yeah. You have, as product manager, you have to go judge who the user or consumer of your template is, what are the things that enable them to deliver value and design a template API accordingly. Okay, like, any other application API, that's the first thing you look at. Who's going to use it? How, what value do they get out of calling this API? What are the parameters that they might need to call in case they need some more you know, variables? And what about how they're going to use it and why? Uh, that's exactly how are they going to use it what value do they get out of using your API or template? Absolutely. It is part of the no, design. But that's not the same as why. How are they going to use it? Okay, we can program that. Uh, what they're going to use it for, we can, okay, it's a call. It's, it's doing something. But why are they using it is key to what value they will get out of it, not only today, but tomorrow as well. And 90,000 APIs, I agree with you, Don. That's a hell of a lot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, and it's it's not operationally sustainable on the back end. The, to me, this right. is this, right? I, I, I agree with, there's a user issue here, but part of where I started on this complexity journey two years ago when we started talking about it was the idea that we're hiding complexity behind APIs, which that's great. And, 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 and the, now I'll, I'll go full circle and maybe we can wrap up on this point because we're out, we're out of time. But the Octa breach exposes that hiding complexity behind an API does not shield you from the complexity of the implementation. It, it just makes you think you don't have to care about it. Um, and so 
what we're, what, you know, so when we, when we put in these abstraction boundaries, they're, they're great for the consumer. They can hide a lot of complexity, but the complexity is still behind that, that barrier. And in some cases, because of the way we put together the API, the Amazon APIs are a great example. There's huge complexity that is, has to be absorbed. Um, that like they, their, their, their complexity is much higher because they're serving so many customers through so many APIs. Um, Actually, the Amazon example is the opposite, where the complexity is pushed to the customer because they have to deal with all the. They did not hide the complexity behind this, and for Am from an Amazon standpoint, their services are super simple, really low. That's why they were able to build a global scale one. Wow. I'm always impressed with how we discuss complexity, how much I learn, how complex complexity is, and also how important it is to being able to design good systems. This is part of a long running discussion for us as we try to come up with really concrete, actionable items for managing complexity, improving complexity, dealing with the risk of complexity. So please come join us in these conversations at the 2030.cloud. Uh, we want to hear from your voice. We want to have your perspectives and include them into this discussion. That is how we will learn the most. So I'll see you there. And thanks. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly. Or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.